For you and I to lose something tangible like keys, a wallet, or the mate to one of our favorite pairs of socks, that can send us on a hunt, (laughs) perhaps even a wild goose chase. Even to lose something intangible like a game around the dinner table with family or perhaps in a more serious competition like a tournament where the stakes are higher. That can have an impact on us as well. In either case, it can be frustrating to lose anything based on the circumstance around it and the value placed on it. It reminds me of being a child on the playground or a teenager in the high school gymnasium. See, whenever I would lose something of value, I knew the unwritten rule for some of the kids or even most of the kids was finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Now, one of the things that is so perplexing is when we have no idea how or where that particular item was lost. It's like we we immediately mobilize a search committee and we get others involved as we retrace our steps trying to figure out at what point did we lose it? You know, This happened to me not too long ago with my wedding band. Yikes. (laughs) There's a lyric in the well-known hymn of the church, Amazing Grace, which says this, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. Looking beyond the rumpus and chatter around the writer and the impetus for the song, Both lyrically and biblically, amazing grace holds true for every child born of God. The composer and Anglican John Newton wasn't simply saying he was physically lost or blind. He was speaking of the impact of sin and separation from God. It's the issue of being spiritually lost and spiritually blind to the knowledge and truth of Christ. All right, so in our text here in Luke 4, we see the faithfulness of God the Father over the life of God the Son, and we see how God the Holy Spirit is at work here giving power to the incarnate Christ, the Word made flesh. Luke, who is often regarded as the beloved physician, he offers us a familiar story As found in the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark, he offers his account, his perception, at what is known as the temptation of Jesus. Now, verse 1 begins by establishing that Jesus has already been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptizer. But Luke's focal point here is Jesus being full of or filled with the Holy Spirit. This is important, and we don't want to just glaze over this reality as it sets the pace for everything else to come in these verses. In fact, it offers you and I an assurance that we should lay hold of and fasten our affections around daily. Jesus, being full of the Spirit, helps you and I to comprehend and even, in a sense, apprehend the power of his faithfulness throughout his earthly ministry. 
Now, during our time, we're going to look into and draw strength from three truths from this text. First, the anointed one. Second, the anointer. Third and final, the anointing. Now, these truths God has made known to us, to you and I, the power and the proof of his commitment to the keeping and preservation of his children. Yes, especially in and through the trials of this life. All right, let us look and draw strength from point one, the anointed one. Jesus, who lived and persevered perfectly, has become the victor and the propitiation for all who would believe in him. Okay, so Jesus is clearly the anointed one. That's what Christ means. And scripture is clear that he was full of or filled with the Holy Spirit. But why tell us this? And what relevance does this have to both his person and his work? Furthermore, what does this mean for us? Especially since he is the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. See, because all, speaking of humanity, died in Adam, all, you and I, <laughs> we needed the anointed one to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, but live a life without sin so that all who would trust in him by faith would have their sins forgiven and blotted out so they could be redeemed. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Romans 5, verses 14 and 15. And here's what he says. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command or the same commandment that Adam did, as did Adam, who is pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died in the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? See, it was the God-man who redeemed us. It was the word that became flesh who bore our shame. Jesus Christ having two natures, without mixture or corruption, being truly God and truly man. And I like to say, absolutely God and absolutely man. He is the anointed one whom the Father found favor in. And he is the one who found us, we who were lost. See, it's not that he couldn't find us, but it was us who could not find him. Church, Christ is the finder. And yes, Christ is the keeper. For him, it's all about finders keepers. In fact, Jesus makes this clear in John 6 and 39. And here's what it says. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is Christ speaking. That I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, for all the miracles and signs that Jesus performed, it was the power to be perfect in holiness, to be 
truly sinless while experiencing the limitations of human flesh. This is what I'm most grateful for. See, he is the anointed one. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit without measure. We ought to find great joy in that. We ought to find great comfort in that. A perfect man took on the sin of an unrighteous people so an imperfect people could take on the righteousness of a perfect man. I'll say it another way. He is the promised one anointed of God. And he is the anointed one promised of God. Now let us look and draw strength from point two. Speaking of the anointer, the Holy Spirit. Now, with the understanding from Luke chapter 3, where Christ was baptized in the Jordan, this establishes for us here in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, which says this, Upon the return of his baptism in Jordan, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness or desert, where for 40 days he fasted, ate nothing, and then was tempted by Satan. Now imagine that. Promptly following the inauguration of his public ministry, he immediately, Jesus, goes into a time of solitude where he is opposed by Satan, the tempter himself. Now, this desert became a place of proving and testing, but the anointer, the Holy Spirit, has equipped him, Jesus, in fullness, without measure, in power. Jesus was both spirit-filled and spirit-led. In just these two verses, we're seeing the Trinity at work for God's glory and for our good. The anointer, the Holy Spirit, has anointed the anointed one. Let me say this. Flesh, meaning any person, without the Holy Spirit cannot endure trials. Flesh, any person, without the Holy Spirit, cannot resist Satan. Flesh, any person, without the Holy Spirit, cannot meet God's standard for holiness. But Christ Jesus did all of this. In the power of the anointer, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is both the breath and the inspiration of Scripture. Friends, I cannot be the husband I need to be without the help of the Holy Spirit. We, the church, cannot walk in love as Christ would have us without the help of the Holy Spirit. The church cannot be a city set on a hill without the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't even confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and that he is Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. And that's made clear in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. See, for the child of God, you who trust wholly or totally in the anointed one, the anointer has given you exactly what you need for the trials you face today, the test you're in today, and the temptation that confronts you today. So what else does this mean? And, well, it means that you can face the day with an odd confidence. 
And by odd, I mean odd in the sense that we don't live based on how things seem on the surface, but in light of the fact that our souls have been sealed. The Apostle Paul, when writing to the church at Ephesus, he makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Allow me to quote the NASB. Here's what it says. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Brothers and sisters, we have a guarantee that Christ, who found you, will faithfully keep you if you're in Christ. You have the anointer, or what's more, the anointer has you. Now, let us look and draw strength from our third and final point, the anointing. All right, so third and finally, verse three of Luke four. Luke writes that Satan says to Jesus, notice, if you are the son of God, which is actually to say, since you are the son of God. Now, let's pause. A couple of things here to note. Satan, in a few facets, he wants Jesus to do this. He wants him to abuse his position as son and abuse his authority to command and abuse his power or his anointing to make stone become bread. And he wanted Jesus to do all of this for a self-serving, self-reliant purpose. Satan also wanted the satisfaction of having the influence over Jesus, which would have shown a type of glory to Satan. But all the glory belongs to God. And he said that he will not share it with another. Christ won the victory in every way. And he did this every time. The 19th century uh, Scottish-born theologian and minister, George Smeaton, he wrote this, and I quote, The human nature, speaking of Christ, was confirmed by the Spirit and made victorious at every point of assault by the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. See, the victory one in both Jesus' life and death, makes all the difference for the church. It makes all the difference for those who believe. It was Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary death that changed both our condition, which was dead in sin, and position, strangers and aliens to God. Christ accomplished all of this for those who trust in him and in him alone. The substance and simplicity of the gospel message is totally sufficient and it reaches every aspect and every angle of your life. And that's why we say, as the apostle Paul said, and that is this, we preach Christ and him crucified. 
even to those already believing. See, this beautiful truth, it ministers strength to the quiet cries of our souls. To weary pilgrims, this is the rest for your souls. And the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and at work through you. And all of this is done as he wills. Let me say this in case someone should uh, entice you with a strange and aberrant teaching. Let me say you don't need to pursue or pay for some special anointing. You already possess the anointing according to the grace and measure he has willed for you. You don't need to hunt for something you already have. Simply rest on what you have already received. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21 makes this abundantly clear. It says this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So now back to Luke 4. Verse 3, we see the anointing at work in Christ in resistance to the suggestions of Satan while he, Jesus, was in a physical state of great need. He was hungry, like 40 days hungry. He proved that he being the bread of heaven was greater than the bread of nature or natural bread. Now, why is this important? Because the father provides for his children's needs. And they don't have to pervert their power to provide for themselves. Verse 3 says, for Jesus answered and he says, speaking to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. And since Jesus began the statement with what is known in grammar as the antecedent, that simply means the noun that comes first in the statement. So when he says, it was written, so he's saying something written is real and tangible. He's speaking of the word. So the antecedent is the word of God, and the word of God takes priority over natural bread. Not to the exclusion of natural bread. Now, it's not a sin to eat food. But really, in this context, where Christ is not allowing himself to succumb to the suggestions of Satan. So this is another way of saying, think of it this way. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, and here's what it says. Do not love the world. And so speaking of the natural things that the world can give, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, now notice here, speaking the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says, it comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, God has already provided and made a way. He has equipped us with the truth that triumphs over every temptation 
and victory that carries us through each and every valley. Now, the well-known Puritan and Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, he said it this way, and I quote, When we have had the most comfortable communion with God and the clearest discoveries of his favor to us, we may expect that Satan will set upon us the richest ship in the pirate's prize and that God will suffer him to do so. Why? So the power of his grace may be manifested and magnified. End quote. See, the trial you face today, no matter how gut-wrenching it is, it's an opportunity for God's glory to be revealed through you. Friends, the God who finds is the God who keeps. So no matter where you find yourself today, no matter how difficult or how challenging, because of Christ, the anointed one, who was filled with the anointer and lived in power of the anointing without measure, your faith in him and in his work gives rest to your weary soul. A few verses down the road in verse 18, Jesus makes all of this clear by stating his purpose for his anointing. Here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, our Father, there are many things in many places to whom and to where we could turn. And the temptation to turn to everyone and everywhere else except you is great. And this becomes especially true as we find ourselves in this wilderness, in this desert of sorts. It's easy to put our hope and confidence in an idol, in something or someone other than you. It's easy for us to treat you like a spare tire where we break glass in case of emergency. But you declare that you are our very present help, especially in a time of trouble. So you're not help on the way. You're not help around the corner. You're a present help. And you know the way that we take. And you said that when we have been tried, that we would come forth as pure gold. So I, I pray, Lord, I ask that you would help us, your church, to resolve, to be resolute, 
to persevere, not in our own strength and might, but in the power of the anointer who has given each and every one of us a measure of the anointing that we would be able to stand in the day of great testing and trial, knowing that you have already made a way of escape. I ask, Lord God, that for those who may be viewing and watching this, who do not know you in saving faith, I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your infallible and inerrant and all-sufficient word, that you would cause faith to arise, faith to be born in the hearts. Take out stone, put in flesh, open the eyes of their understanding. And Lord, we give you glory and honor, not simply because of what you've done, and Lord, you have done so much for us, but even the more because of who you are. It is to you that we give glory and honor in all this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.